Hello and welcome to part two of this episode of History Between the Lines about British traitors during the Cold War. And in part two we're going to talk about John Vassal, who was another Soviet spy. So John Vassal was born on the 20th of September 1924. And again, like Burgess, he was brought up in a very respectable, conventional um, British background. Um, again, like Burgess, he went to prep schools and he left um, school in April 1941, aged 16. And in a nutshell, Eleanor, he was in the RAF during the Second World War. Yeah, so he tried to join the RAF in 1942 as aircrew, but he wasn't accepted. Eventually, he was accepted as a photographer and he would learn about taking photos and surveillance and it would all become quite useful to him as you can imagine later on. So after the war he joined the civil service and after a couple of postings um, in 1954 he was sent to work um, in the British embassy in Moscow and such a posting excited him because obviously the Cold War had started in earnest by this point, but he also felt quite lonely and homesick. He was a member of the junior embassy staff, and according to his autobiography, he wasn't treated very well. Um, he, he was very good at his job, and he did have a lot of charisma, but... Um, he talked about how he soon had to learn self-reliance because the senior staff um, didn't treat him and other junior members that well. I'm not sure how much of that is true, Eleanor. No, because it comes from his own autobiography, which is um, sort of is his version of the story of his life. It's, it's going to be very biased account. But one of the things that he did do was um, he didn't go to many of the parties, really, that were um, put on for um, embassy staff. He, he didn't... It wasn't his scene much, was it? No, he, he seems to have a bit of snobbery where parties came from. He says that he preferred much higher class entertainment such as the ballet and the opera um, and you sort of get the impression he felt these parties and the people who went to them were beneath him. Mm. So um, that was his pastime in Moscow, that was what um, he enjoyed doing and um, and fatefully he came across some embassy staff who helped him get tickets for um ballet and opera in Moscow. One of them was a Polish member of staff called um, Mikhelski and um, a Greek man as well. And what he didn't know is that both these men were Soviet agents and this was the beginning of his entrapment. The relationship with these two men soon developed. They became quite friendly with each other. I think they soon figured out that he was homosexual, which... Um, back then of course was illegal and something that he had to keep a secret but they soon realised that this was something they could blackmail him with. One evening they went to a restaurant and um, to meet someone they knew um, who Vassal describes in his autobiography as a skier only. Um, he, he, I don't think he ever names him perhaps out of embarrassment because this is one of the turning points in terms of um, Vassal becoming a traitor. So this skier um, again um, became a friend. Um, they wined and dined him quite regularly to sort of um, 
getting his good books. And one night, Eleanor, it went badly for Vassal. Yeah, so you sort of get the impression that he um, was being manipulated um, into this friendship with this man that, like, as you say, he only refers to as the skier. And one night they go out and he feels that his drink is probably drugged. He doesn't have an awful lot of memories of that night, but what he does remember, it's quite an alarming situation for anyone to have been in. Um, Without going into any details, it soon becomes apparent that he has been involved um, in a compromising situation, including other men um, who were taking photographs. Mm. as well this was this all happened in a hotel in moscow and um and in 1955 so he's been um at the embassy in moscow for about a year again he's invited by the skier later on that night and um are effectively soviet interrogators they tell him that he has committed an illegal act and vassal at this point talks about in his autobiography about how alone he felt and and um he felt even more horrified when he was shown the photographs that were taken of him from the hotel so obviously this put him in a compromising position and um the secret service men threatened that if he didn't cooperate with them aka if he didn't become a spy for them at the embassy the pictures would be sent to the press the embassy and his family. In short, Vassal's life would be over and he would go to prison. So Vassal had no one to turn to and with this threat of blackmail, he was forced to become a spy. He was coerced into it. So, um, and um, the routine was that he was to attend meetings with the Russians every few weeks um, and sort of tell them what they wanted to know in regards to what was going on at the embassy or the information that was being passed around it. So initially, Eleanor, uh, his Soviet handlers were quite sympathetic to his position. Like They tried to make Vassal relax a little and they tried to... um, Again, they're still trying to make out that they are his friends and that they're looking out for him. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting that you've got um, his own um, naval attaché who he he feels he can't talk to, he can't confide in, and yet you've got these um, Soviet handlers who are blackmailing and threatening him, but he then talks about how he could confide in them. So, yeah, it's quite uh, conflicting he can't talk to his actual boss but these who are threatening him he he feels friendlier towards he feels they were friendly towards towards him he they understood him a bit more which probably as you say it was certainly manipulation on the part of the KGB Mm. which I think was furthered when they eventually made Vassal hand over secret papers they no longer just wanted info, they wanted um, documents as well. And um, he, they also started paying him as well for, for his troubles. So these two things further entrapped him. Like if if ever this got out that he was now in the pay of the KGB and that he had handed over documents, he would be in ten times more trouble now. So this further trapped him into just continuing to being a Soviet spy. Yeah, he was paid for his work with the British 
uh, about £300 a year. Mm. But um, his lifestyle was uh, someone who was being paid closer to maybe 700 to to £1,000 a year. Um, which for, I think a lot of people would get people talking, uh, but people just assumed he had an inheritance or he had family with money, he came from money. So it was never really questioned, mm. but he certainly lived a very good life with the money that he was making from the KGB. I think there's talk of 36 Savile Row suits. There was holidays abroad, there was a really nice flat. Things that he shouldn't be able to afford on his, his wage. Mm. Um, so towards the end of 1955 he was told at the embassy that his posting in Moscow was coming to an end and he was going back to Britain now initially he thought that this was his way out that once he actually left Russia um, he would no longer need to spy for the KGB but um, that hope was soon dashed when they said to him no 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 you're going to continue being a spy for us in London they gave him details about who his new Soviet handler would be in Britain a man called Gregory and um, and I think he became quite um, he became more of a valuable spy at this time because in London he got a job at the division of naval intelligence this was around um, the autumn of 1956 and um and yeah again that the same um pattern developed whereby he would arrange to meet gregory somewhere to hand over information and government secrets um and there was quite an elaborate code wasn't there there was a lot of sort of yeah. security checks when the two of them met up it it plays out very much like your typical spy film or or book that he's told um, to wear a green Tyrolean hat with a brush of feathers, carrying a newspaper. He wasn't to approach anybody, but Gregory would approach him, saying, can you tell me the best way to Belzai's Park tube station? And Vassal was supposed to reply, the best way is to take a taxi. And there's a lot of codes like that, such as, you know, if he's in trouble, he's to mark a tree with, a pink, with pink chalk, or he needs to make a phone call with really elaborate coded messages. And it, it really does sound like a typical spy, what we think of when we think spies. Vassal was the Assistant Private Secretary to the Civil Lord of the Admiralty, who was Thomas or Tam Galbraith. Yeah. And, um, and then later on he went to the military branch of the Admiralty. Now at this point the Russians were very interested in the information he had to give whilst he was working there. Yeah, it seems that the KGB were a bit miffed that um, whilst working for Tam Galbraith that there was no valuable information he could get from there um, and had no interest in any documentation that he could be um, providing them with. When he changed to the military branch of the Admiralty, he got a new handler that was called Nikolai. So he moved on from Gregory. And um, and yeah, things continued like that, more or less, for the rest of the 1950s. And then in 1962, he was um, walking down the street and he was suddenly surrounded by men from Scotland Yard and he was arrested. Um, they had found him out, effectively. He was taken into custody. Vassal confessed to everything in his interrogation at Scotland Yard. He told them about the cameras that could be found at his flat um, that had been given to him by the Russians. And um, 
I think he he confessed well he thought that he would be treated as a victim of circumstance at that point he thought that he would um be treated well i think this also shows how uncommitted he really was to being a soviet spy the fact that as soon as he was caught he confessed everything yeah he he didn't set out to be a spy he wasn't a spy for the british he was um a clerical assistant he didn't work for MI5, he didn't work for MI6. So it must have been completely unknown territory for him to be yeah. put in this situation. Yeah. And um, and they found Vassal out through a Soviet defector, didn't they, Eleanor? Yeah, so there's a couple of Soviet defectors, um, well, three, really, who gave him enough information. So you've got Anatoly Galitsyn, Yuri Nosenko, and then... Michael Golianevsky, who all gave enough information without naming names. They weren't taken as seriously as maybe they should have been. Um, there's a lot of controversy surrounding all three of them. Um, but there was obviously enough information there that MI5, before his arrest, actually eavesdropped on his flat um, and got a surveillance team to follow him to and from work. And actually MI5 burgled his flat as well so all the information that Vassal gave to the police MI5 already knew and told the police and told them where they could find everything in the end they didn't need to bring all the evidence out to him because as soon as he was in the car he told them everything yeah he sung like a canary (laughs) so Scotland Yard go to the then Prime Minister Harold Macmillan um, pretty pleased with themselves, they found a Soviet spy, but Macmillan was furious that he had been caught, and mm. um, and he said in a public trial this scandal could topple the government, so he was furious that they had actually caught um, Vassal. And Vassal's trial began in October 1962, and again he, he pleaded guilty um, of espionage. Now, the judge declared that he had done this out of selfish greed and that he did this so that his extravagant spending and holidays could be funded and the British press as well latched onto this and effectively said he had done it out of greed, um, betraying his country. Yeah, um, so it seems that at the time there may have been as much fury around his homosexuality as there was around his spying antics. Yes, yeah. And there was certainly a lot of homophobia surrounding this whole case. Um, the I think the issue is that because the KGB started paying him in small amounts first and incrementally increased it, he started to rely on the income. So it, towards the end, it looked like he was doing it for money, depending on who you you listen to. Vassal certainly says it was not about the money. He was blackmailed. He was coerced. This was Mm. not something he wanted to Mm. do, but he felt he had no choice. And that is how the whole thing started. You know, he wasn't approached with the offer of money. He was approached because um, they had incriminating material on him at that time. So, Mm. yeah, blackmail was certainly the beginning of um, his motivation for becoming... Um, a double agent and I think 
even after his trial, headlines about Vassal um, stayed in the press for months afterwards because soon after he was convicted, I should say, the judge sentenced him to 18 years um, Mm. imprisonment. And soon after his trial, the Cuban Missile Crisis started and this turned many British people um, even more against traitorous Soviet spies. So the rage that was felt at what he had done was even more acute. And as you said, Eleanor, fueled by um, the homophobia that was present in the British media and in Britain in general um, at that time. Yeah, so newspapers started printing... Um articles with headlines such as how to spot a homo uh, which would give a list of how you could tell if someone was gay it was very much um, surrounded by homophobic views and Rebecca West in 1964 wrote a book about John Vassal and she wrote the drunken party may have taken place but it was probably engineered so that Vassal might have might refer to it should his treachery ever be discovered and I think what she's saying is that um, he set up the party. Her book about Vassal um, is extremely biased in her opinion of him and how she viewed homosexuality. And I can't help thinking maybe it was a sign of moral views at the time. So both things were seen as morally reprehensible, both to be homosexual and to sell British secrets to the enemy. And they both went hand in hand. And you have to remember, this is at a time of massive interest in spies. Um, You know, like you say, say, you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis. um, You've got the Profumo Affair just after the Portland spy ring. A year later, you have Kim Philby, who um, makes his escape to Moscow. Ten years before, you've got Burgess and McLean who defected. Um, And then, of course, you've got the first James Bond film that came out in the early 1960s. Spying is big news. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, of course, um, Burgess and McLean's defection had exacerbated this um, perceived connection between homosexuality and communism because Burgess was gay, McLean was bisexual... So there was they their defection and their treachery fueled the idea that if you were gay, you were susceptible to a becoming a communist and b becoming a traitor and a Soviet spy. And there are other implications in all of this because he worked for Galbraith. All communication between the two was very closely looked at, and because Galbraith called him um, dearest vassal. I think something like that. They started to make out that there was um, a sordid connection between the two and Galbraith was forced to resign as well uh, from his post. So it all becomes very murky um, and because of opinions around sexuality at the time. Yeah. After he was imprisoned, Vassal was a model prisoner. He behaved himself well and therefore he was released in 1972 on parole, having served 10 of his 18 years in prison. Um, He made friends in jail, including with George Blake, another British traitor, but for markedly different reasons. Um, Vassal still had his charm. After prison, he got a lot of support from his friends, and... um, and he became an archivist later in life. 
So he found um, another job and lived out the rest of his days doing that profession. Um, And he died in November 1996. So to go back to Vassal's motivations, um, I think that it was coercion was the main um, force behind Vassal's treachery. I think if we go back to the mice theory, um, the C is for compromise or coercion, which is a very dangerous thing um, to do for um, people who want to recruit spies in the enemy camp because if someone is being forced into doing something obviously their heart isn't in it and um, and it is quite dangerous to force someone to do something they could be very um, uncooperative which I think Vassal was because he often um, he he was a low-level clerk. That was his job for most of the government departments he was in. So often the information he handed the Russians um, was low-grade stuff, really, in terms of its value to them. And I think if he had really tried, he could have got them more valuable intelligence at the places he worked, but he didn't because he wasn't committed to being a spy. He was being forced to do this. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, if you compare him to uh, Burgess, Burgess is obviously extremely involved in his spy work. He is doing it because he loves communism and... Which Vassal didn't. Vassal didn't was not a communist no, either. not at all. So. And, you know, Burgess would give untold amounts of information. He would recruit spies... Whereas, as you say, Vassal begrudgingly gave over the minimum, the bare minimum of what he could. And yes, he was paid quite well for his work. But, you know, throughout his autobiography, he mentions a few times how he hoped this would be the end of it. He hoped that they would leave him alone now. Yeah. And I just can't imagine the burden he must have felt, the weight on his shoulders he must have felt throughout this whole period. And I just wonder if when he got into that that police car it was a release yeah he felt he felt relief rather than dread um when he was arrested and um and i think you can say that vassal certainly wanted a grand life for himself he certainly spent quite a bit and he went on a lot of extravagant holidays but this might have been a way to build a fantasy world to get away from the deep danger that he was in by being a Soviet spy. And and yes, you know, I think he had resentments and he was frustrated at his superiors. And as I've just said, he wanted money. He wanted to be a rich person. But, you know, a lot of people can have both those feelings and not become a spy. You know, I think it was the coercion and the threat of blackmail that was um, the motivation that made him betray his country. And I think you have to think as well in terms of the time frame this took place in. Even though people didn't realise he was gay, there must have been some sort of... um, They must have suspected something because they were calling him names like Pansy or Vera, which would give the impression that they knew something. Um, And homophobia was rife. Like you say, it was illegal and he must have been absolutely petrified being told, look what we have, we have proof, we are going to send this and you are going to be arrested and you are going to go to prison because you're breaking the law. 
It, well, he was kind of... It was, do you want to go to prison for being gay or do you want to go to prison for being a spy? It was between a rock and a hard place and for I s- him. I suppose at the time he was told, we have this evidence, you are going to prison. Whereas the idea of being a spy, okay, he might not have wanted to do it, but it might go away. The yeah. the photos were not going to go away. They were there and the evidence was there. So I suppose he felt he had no choice. He, yeah, it was yeah. his way out. Um, one of one of the most interesting things I think about the John Vassell story is if you compare him to Burgess, um, who we talked about in part one, they both did the same things. They became spies and they sold British government secrets to the Russians. At that point, probably Britain's most serious enemy. Um, and yet... I'd say for most people, they would feel mostly sympathy for Vassal because he was being blackmailed into this and contempt for Burgess, who was doing this out of ideological conviction and because he thought that this was some sort of big adventure that he was on. So um, it shows how um, different types of traitors can have different motivations and they can evoke different responses from people. Yeah, it's night and day, really, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah. You've, like you say, you've it's got... not clear cut, you know, when it comes to um, traitors. Certainly in this period, and if we look at these two um, different people who were both traitors, yeah. they both did the same thing. They were Soviet spies, but I don't think their motivations could have been more different from each other. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Well, thank you, Eleanor, for um, joining me to talk about Guy Burgess and John Vassell. I hoped everyone enjoyed listening to this episode about British traitors during the Cold War. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye.